But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning by your spirit through this word. Lord, would you please teach us? Would you train us? Would you equip us for godliness? Would you inflame our hearts with love for Christ, that we might be obedient to you and we might worship you with all of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Word of God has some amazing love stories in it. The first, of course, is in the very beginning of God's Word in the book of Genesis and the creation account when God creates the man and the animals and he parades the animals before Adam and yet there is not a suitable helper for Adam. And so God creates the woman. He creates Eve out of the man. And he brings the woman to the man. And Adam exclaims at last, Behold, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then a little while later, we hear the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Abraham had desired to have a wife for his son Isaac, but he wanted a wife from his own people, and so he sent his servant to go find a wife for his son, and he found Rebekah, the beautiful young Rebekah, and he, after convincing Rebekah and her family, Rebekah came back with the servant, and from a long way off, she saw Isaac, and she covered her face with a veil, and Isaac took Rebekah as his wife, and quickly fell in love with her, and uh, took and she became his wife. And then shortly thereafter, we hear the story of Jacob and Rachel. Jacob, who fell in love with the beautiful Rachel, and he agreed to work for seven years, seven long years, so that he might purchase, he might have Rachel as his wife. And his love for Rachel was so strong that they seemed but just a few days. And yet when the wedding night came, Laban, Rachel's father tricked Jacob and gave him Leah, Rachel's sister instead. But it was no matter. Jacob decided he would have Rachel as his wife, and so he agreed to work for seven more years so that she would be his. And then there was David and Abigail. Abigail, who was beautiful and wise, and she, but she was married to a man named Nabal, a man who, whose name literally means fool. David had watched over Nabal's servants, and David had simply asked for some customary hospitality, and Nabal, in his foolishness, said, no, who is this David? And David's wrath was kindled, yet Abigail rushed out to David, and in humility and reverence, won over the heart of David so that his wrath was subsided. And after Nabal died shortly thereafter, David took Abigail as his wife. And beloved, there are even more lovely love stories throughout God's Word, but what we need to understand is this, is that all of these stories, each and every one of them, 
is a forward-looking glimpse of the love of Christ Jesus for his people, for his church. And that's a part of this, this glorious aspect of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's part of what we celebrate, is that Jesus Christ is coming to, to purchase, to redeem, to, to, to prepare his bride for glory. We see it all throughout the, the pages of the New Testament. The father desired a, son, a bride for his son, and so he entered into a covenant with his people, and he sent his son to take on human flesh and to seek and to save her for his very own. But in order to save her, he had to become like her. He had to become bone of her bones and flesh of her flesh. And so the Son of God took on human flesh to become like his bride, like her in every way, and yet without sin. And yet she belonged to another, to a man of foolishness, of wickedness, her heart was tied to the world, the foolishness of the world, the wickedness of the world. And so he had to seek and save her out of that through his, his obedience, through his faithfulness, faithfulness unto death, to break the chains of that slavery. And yet, the work isn't quite done. Because he's, he came, he, he lived, he faithfully purchased his bride, she's his. And yet what he has is Leah. What he has is the wife that is weak in eyes, scorned, despised. This king came for a pure bride. His heart was for Rachel. His heart was for the, the beautiful woman that he longed for. And so his work continues. His purification work continues. Just like Esther with her 12 months of purification treatments as she prepared to enter into the king of Persia, Leah must become Rachel. The king will purify his bride. He will prepare her for glory. And beloved, as we, as we look at this passage, and we consider this, the story of the gospel, of these two appearance, appearances, the first appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, his having come. And then we look ahead to his, his second appearance when he comes in glory. We, this passage is focused on the present age, the here and now, what, the time that we're living in now. And what we have to see is that this is a time of preparation, that the Lord Jesus Christ is still at work. And he's at work in us to prepare us, to purify us, He's preparing us for glory. This is our bridegroom preparing his bride to be beautiful and in splendor. And so this is a period of time where the bridegroom awaits his bride, even you and I, as he prepares us for glory. But it's a, as we come to this season of the year, it's, it's an appropriate time to ask the question, as it always is, why did the Son of God become a man? Why did the Son of God become a man? And I think if you ask the average Christian why the Son of God became a man, the answer would immediately be, so he could save us, which is absolutely true. He, he had to come to be a man. Or he, he would save us by dying on the cross. In order to die on the cross, he had to be a man who was... All, 
and he was representing mankind, so he had to take on human flesh. He did it to save us, and that's exact, absolutely true. And Paul says that very thing in verse 14 of our passage. He says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This, he came to give himself, to redeem. He, it was, there was an exchange, a substitution, where he gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that sin is lawlessness. He came to redeem us from sin. We are told that the wages of sin, what we have earned for our sin, sin into which we are all born, the wages of sin is death. We have earned that as a result of our lawlessness, and Jesus Christ came to give himself, to offer himself as a substitute to redeem us from all lawlessness. So that's absolutely true. Some of us might also say, well, the Son of God became man because of, for God's glory, which is also true. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God wanted to, he desired to reveal his love, his mercy. So he sent his Son, his Son took, willingly took on human flesh as a means of, of glorifying the Lord and revealing the glory and love of our God. That's also true. But there's also another very important reason, which we see in the second part of verse 14. It says, He gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There is an aspect of when he redeemed himself, redeemed us for himself. There was a, a transaction that took place. We, we see elsewhere that he purchased us with his own precious blood. But it wasn't as slaves. It says he, came, he, he redeemed us and to purify us as a people for his own possession. His own treasured possession is another way of translating it. You might know that that same language is in the book of Exodus. In the Old Testament, as the people of Israel come to the foot of Mount Sinai before the law was given, and, and the Lord said, if you will indeed obey all my commandments and my laws, you will be to me a treasured possession out of the entire earth. You will be mine. You will be a unique and special possession. The sad truth, which we know throughout Scripture, we know throughout the, the life of the church, and, and know through our own lives, is that we are not faithful to each and every one of God's commandments. And yet Jesus Christ came to make us his possession. He came to purchase us, to satisfy all the law's demands so that we would be his special possession, so that we would be his bride, so that he could lavish his love upon us for all eternity. And this is a, a love that God has had promised in the Old Testament in his covenant of grace that he would lavish his grace upon us. And this is love that was exhibited and accomplished in the life of Jesus Christ. And so he redeemed us, he purchased us. And yet, it's not a, it's not a love that is fully consummated, is it? It's not a love... It's not a salvation that we experience in its fullness, in the way that is intended to be the, the perfection of the intimate relationship with Christ himself. And so we have to be purified. 
that we are purified for himself as a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And this is something that we see here, but we also heard Paul say this in that passage that we know very well from the book of Ephesians where he's talking to husbands. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it belong, that refers to Christ and the church. But he says, the Son of God left the glories of heaven in order to take on human flesh to give himself for his bride, and he has done that. Yet now he is purifying her. He is sanctifying her. He is preparing her for glory. The king of kings will have a pure and spotless bride that dazzles in splendor. Beloved, another way of talking about this is the, the work of sanctification. We use that word, but we have to understand that sanctification, the purification process of God's church, of God's people, is not this theolo abstract theological concept. This is a very relational concept. This is Christ Jesus, the beloved bridegroom, cleansing, preparing, eagerly awaiting for his bride to be ready for glory. And this is a necessary part of our salvation. The bride must be prepared. Without holiness, no one. We'll see the Lord. Yeah, beloved, it is, we, we have to get beyond must. We have to get beyond a, we have to do this type of thing. Notice what it says again in verse 11. The grace of God appeared. The grace of God. This is God's grace poured out to us. This is God's grace at work in even now preparing us for glory. The Son of God didn't come to force us to become holy. The Son of God came to free us, to be able to be empowered and enlivened, to enjoy the process of being purified and prepared for glory and to enjoy this gift. Beloved, we have to see holiness as an opportunity to grow closer to our Savior, the one who loves us, the God who made us for himself so that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him and to pursue it with all of our might. We, we, we read from Psalm 119, we've we read many, many times, the law of the Lord is good, reviving the soul. It's good. If it's a blessing, if being in fellowship with God is our heart's desire, what we were made for, Why? Why would we not want to pursue it with all of our hearts? I have two daughters. Neither of them are married yet, but they have gone on dates to 
school dances uh, where they were asked by a young gentleman to go in those dance, to those dances, but never once has my wife had to force them to get ready for those dances. Never had to, never had to force them to get, you know, take, take a shower or to, to put on makeup or anything like that. It's just the opposite. Mom, when can we go find a dress? Mom, when can you do my hair? How, how, how should I do my makeup? But I did also, we did have two weddings. My two sons were married and there's all the buildup and the preparations for that. There's choosing the wedding dress and the bridesmaid dresses, the venues, the florist. Then there's the day of the wedding where the girls get there way, way, way too early to do their hair and their makeup and to do the put on the dress and uh, all the eager anticipation of the procession down the aisle where the bridegroom sees his bride. And beloved, you and I are betrothed to the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will spend eternity with him in his loving and intimate embrace where he knows us fully and loves us perfectly. How could we not eagerly prepare for that glory that is set before us? Our king desires to present us to himself in splendor. And this passage, beloved, it actually gives us a bit of a process for how Christ does this work of preparing us for glory. It is a bit of a process. There is a reality that by the blood of Christ, we have been purified. We have been set apart as his own. That through Christ has shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And by faith, we are forgiven of those sins. And yet there is a process of purifying and perfecting and beautifying the cosmetic treatments and it's right here in our, our passage. And he says, for the great, he says, the grace of God is training us. Training us. Another way of translating that word is disciplining us. There's a disciplinary uh, sense to that word. But implicit in it is change. Implicit in it is in change. The, the, the image we're given in Scripture is that we have been like the woman in Hosea. Well, the Lord told the prophet Hosea, go and purchase this woman of adultery, this woman who has loved other lovers, purchase her for your own. And he goes and he purchases her. But then when she's his, he says, now you must learn to live as mine. And so there's a change of life, a change of thinking. And so is the picture for us, beloved, we have innate with us, worldly passions, worldly desires. We are born with these desires. Our thinking is based on lies and falsehood. We must be trained in thought and deed. And this is a discipline that changes. There's an implicit change in the way we think and what we understand to be true. And if that's the case, beloved, if you're presented with the truth of the gospel and there's a discipline of changing our thinking, do you expect that you will immediately agree with that truth? Or do you expect that there will be a conflict with that truth where you are seeking to wrestle through what is really God's word, what is really truth? And there's also a change of our behavior, change of the way that we live. 
which means that the way that we live implicitly is wrong, it's false, it's not glorifying to the Lord, which means that we must be corrected, we must be told to think a different way and to act a different way and to do things differently, to speak in a different way. And it's a difficult process. The uncleanness needs to be changed to purity and the filth to splendor. But we must be active in that process. And it's the grace of God that does this. And he says the grace of God, he, he gives us this, this, um, this balance of training us to renounce and to live. It says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the act of training, of beautifying. That word renounce, another way of putting it is to deny or to say no to. These are the, he says, renounce this ungodliness and worldly passions. These worldly passions are just these, these desires that we are born with, where we are at the center of our thinking and the center of our lives and everything that we do is surrounding around us. These worldly passions are those where we are fundamentally no different from those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, have not submitted themselves to them, and are living and thinking in exactly the same way. And he says that we are to renounce them, to deny them. Romans chapter 1 actually says that these worldly passions into which we are born are actually what separates us from God. It's the worldly passions that causes us to be blind to the truth and to deny the truth. And here Paul is saying, well, what you need to do is you need to deny those passions and grab hold of the truth. It's an active work of bending our thinking in order to be aligned with the truth of God's word. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a work of changing our, our thinking. And sometimes those passions, those, those desires are so innate to us that we begin to identify ourselves with them. Is that not true? I think that's part of what, what the Lord Jesus Christ had in mind when he said, if any man come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Beloved, are you so inflamed? Is your heart so inflamed with a love for Christ that you are willing to deny your most core desires if only to grab hold of Christ and only to know him and only to receive the grace and the blessing that he has which is far greater than anything that you have in this life that you have on your own that's why Jesus Christ came um, do you see in this, in this verse 12 there's these bookends of godliness he says we're training us to renounce ungodliness, and then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I think it's appropriate for us to ask the question, what exactly is godliness? We use that word. Do we know what that means? In one sense, godliness is um, God, uh, a life lived that, is, uh, that fits with God's character, with what is pleasing to God. Uh, the Greek word, uh, the, these two Greek words have... A, a, a root in both of them, which has a sense of worship, which, which helps a little bit. Worship is giving God his due, uh, offering ourselves and, um, to him in praise and adoration for who he is. And worship is at the heart of 
how we live. And he's, what he says to us is that we are to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness puts ourselves at the center. It has no desire to please or worship God. It's, it's to satisfy ourselves. And we need to live godly lives or pl- pleasing worship to our God. As he says elsewhere, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. We are to live godly lives. So we do that by renouncing those things which cause us to not to dishonor the Lord, to, to fail to worship him, and to live these lives where he says, uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we can understand that as being a holistic view of every part of our being. In one sense, it's a, a, relational, uh, a relational sense where we're self-controlled. We are, we're glorifying the Lord with, re- with reference to ourself. The uprightness is, is a justice and righteousness with how we deal with others. And of course, godliness with how we relate to the Lord. But also there's a sense of the, the, whole, the whole self that is transformed. This word for self-controlled has a mental or cognitive or intellectual sense of being uh, in your right mind. Uh, You might remember the story of Jesus cast in in the region of the Gerasenes, and there was a man who was possessed by demons, and Jesus cast out the demons, and the demons went into the pigs. The pigs ran into the Sea of Galilee, and right after that it says the man was sitting in his right mind. That's that's the picture. That's the same word here. There is a sense that when we, when we are living in accordance with our passions and our desires, we are out of our mind. Isn't that the case when we get into the quarrels and fights? You've lost your mind. You're not thinking rightly is when the truth of God permeates and trains us that we can be self-controlled in our speech and in our actions. And this uprightness deals with our righteous works, our, our, our doing what is right and just, our will worked out, and godliness in, in the course of our spirit. It's the whole self, every relation that we have. Beloved, we can't forget that this is, yet again, this is the grace of God that is doing this. It's the grace of God that's training us to do these things. And that's part of the blindness of our sin, the blindness of the, the, the life that we live in. The Apostle Peter said that, he said, make no provision for the flesh and these, these worldly passions which wage war against your soul. That's, that's the blindness that, that is there where we deny the truth. We think that these natural desires our self-exaltation, our self-leisure, our self-promotion, self-centered control, all these things, we think that's the path of blessing. God's word says the path is to let go of those things, to deny them and accept the truth that is in Christ Jesus. This is the purpose of the Lord Jesus came. This is the reason why the grace of God appeared and what the grace of God continues to do in the life of the church. It's a necessary part of salvation. But it's not something that we are passive in. It is something that is 
as an active work of, that we are commanded to participate in. And we see this all throughout all of chapter 2 of, of, chap, of Titus chapter 2. And I encourage you this afternoon to read that entire chapter, even the whole book. The book is short, and it's a wonderful book. But if you look in verse 11, the very first word, we've skipped over it a number of different times. What is it? He says, for, for the grace of God has appeared. There's a fact that uh, this whole passage that we've been studying, verse 11 to 14, is really an explanation for practical instruction that Paul has given to Titus for the church in Crete and for us as a church. He explains, this is why you must do these things. And I'll summarize what, what uh, Paul teaches to Titus. I encourage you to read it and summarize it because this is how we put this into practice. This is how Christ works through his bride to purify her for glory. The first is teaching in sound doctrine. In verse 1 he says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is important. There's, there's two things that he's teaching there. He says teach sound doctrine and teach what accords with sound doctrine. When we say doctrine, we use that word that means teaching and a, the, the truth of God's word. Spelling out what does God's word say as a foundation for our truth. He says there's a sound doctrine, but there's also teaching what accords with sound doctrine. We should see that as application. Taking that truth and saying, so what? How does that change how we live? Because as he goes on through the rest of uh, verses 1 to 10, he's explaining this is what you must do. Older women must live like this. Younger women must like this. Older men like this. Younger men like this. It's practical living. That's the teaching that accords with sound doctrine. So there's a teaching process, and both of these are necessary. We must be rooted in sound doctrine. It is necessary, but we also must have application that flows from that doctrine. And there's a necessary priority, isn't there? The sound doctrine must come first. We never determine our doctrine, determine what is true based upon the outcome that we want. That's the application. The application must flow from the doctrine. And I would say that every one of us has a preference of where we like to place our emphasis between sound doctrine and application. Some of us love the deep doctrines of Scripture, the doctrine of who God is, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of who the Son of God is, and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of end times, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of who we are as people, the truth that is in God's Word. Those things are necessary for us. And others of us are saying, well, you know, people have figured that out. Just tell me how, how to live. Tell me what's relevant for my life. How do I put it into practice? That's what matters. But the truth is, beloved, we need both. We must be rooted in sound doctrine because our lives will reflect what we believe. The application will flow from that. But the second thing that we need to see is that we need to, be, we need to receive teaching and training. And those things are different. We see both in this passage. He tells Titus in verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older women are to teach the younger women, and so train them. And here in verse 12, he says that the grace of God trains us. Well, what's the difference? Teaching is in imparting 
of truth. It's us listening and putting ourselves under an instruction in the truth. Training is taking that truth and putting it into practice and making sure that I have it as part of my life. Training involves modeling. He tells uh, Titus to set yourself as an example so that people can follow. The older women are to set an example for the younger women. It's a, look at me. I, I have heard this truth and I've put it into practice. Follow this model in me. The second part is to say, now you do it. Now you do it. Let me see how you do it. Yes, that's right. No, no, you need to change this. That's not in accord with sound doctrine. That's training. It's putting into practice. It's correction. It's inspection. It's helping. Both of these things are necessary, beloved. We need to, be, we need to receive the truth. We need to put ourselves under the truth. We need to have ears to hear the truth. Because the truth will inform our doctrine, which informs our life. But then we must put it into practice. We must be trained to put it into practice. Again, all of us have different preferences of how we like what we prefer. Some of us prefer to be in a classroom setting and to receive instruction. Some of us say, that's for the birds. I'm done with school. I I just want to talk through things and discuss. Show me examples. I'll figure it out for myself. The reality is we need both, beloved. We need to be trained and we need to be taught. And insofar as how it works out in the life of the church, that is a matter for each church to figure out how to apply those things. But here in our church, we, have, so we structure our ministries for that very purpose, where we focus on doctrine and application, where we focus on teaching and we focus on training. That's why we have Sunday school and men's ministry and women's ministry and youth ministry and kids ministry and the beginning of home groups, all of them designed to meet these various aspects. We have our preferences. My question to you, beloved, is are you making use of these means that God has given to purify you for glory? Before you get out your your legal pad to start listing out all the reasons why your preference is better than the other or why you can or cannot participate in these things, hit hit the pause button for just a second and go back to verse 11. I want you to see it is the grace of God that has appeared, training you in these things. This is for your good. This is the Son of God who has come to purchase you for his very own. This is the King of Kings who shed his blood for you. And he has, he has provided these means to prepare you for glory. It is all in accordance with his word, worked out through the life of the church in each one of us. Beloved, this is, this is the love of Christ. This is the grace of God lived out through the members of the church, for you and for me, as we express our bold love for one another. Beloved, what what a privilege it is for us to be able to hear the truth of God, what he proclaims in his word, and to learn of it, to be informed by it, to, to learn who is the Savior that came for us, who is this God who has entered into covenant for us, who are we and, and before him? How are we to live before him, to be trained in these things? And what a gracious gift it is. 
the Spirit works in us each to exercise that boldness and that love and that care and that concern to get to know one another, to be able to say, here's, here's the grace that I've figured out. Let's try, try putting this into practice. Oh, uh, this is where you're going astray. Here, come back, brother. Come back, sister. To have somebody caring for you to keep you in the grace of God. What a, what a gracious gift that the Lord has given to us. Beloved, this is, this is the picture of our Savior working in his church to purify her for glory. This is a picture of a bride preparing herself for her husband. And this is why the Son of God came for you and for me, beloved. Will you, will we be a church that Christ works through to purify one another for the sake of glory? Will you let the Son of God purify you, prepare you in splendor for him? Beloved, he is eagerly awaiting for you. One day he will be ours. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love for us, and thank you that you are at work within us. Lord, I pray that you would guide us in this church as we do eagerly desire to be pure in your sight, to be glorious and pleasing to you. Lord, please work through us as we seek to be bold and seek to be faithful. Help us to be gentle and kind to one another, compassionate. Help us to know one another. I pray that you would cultivate true community within us, that we might love one another with the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you that your love is so supreme. And you don't leave us to ourselves, but you do prepare us. So we thank you for this, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.